0: Entering the Freedom Hut.
1: The border crisis continues and Democrats are showing that they want to decriminalize. At least some of them want to decriminalize illegal entry into this country. This is a leap toward open borders. We've got a lot for you on that. And also the latest in the scandals that the Democrats are covering up. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission, our mission, is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One
2: for Make no mistake. America, great, you're a your. great American.
0: Again, the Buck Sexton show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst, former member Obama. of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It
2: is Buck Sexton. Now, Mexico is now stopping people coming. Very easy for them to do stopping people coming in through Mexico. Let's see if they keep it done. If if they keep doing that, now. If they don't, or if we don't make a deal with Congress, the border is going to be closed, 100%. Or we're going to close large sections of the border, maybe not all of it. But it's the only way we're getting a response, and I'm totally ready to do it. And I will say this, many people want me to do it.
1: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. President Trump still pushing the idea that he may shut down the border. I don't think that this is the way he's going to go, and I don't think it'll solve or even necessarily help on the problem all that much, but the man's trying to do something. There are no good options available right now because of the laws that exist on the books, because of the situation on the ground at the border, and because one political party no longer believes that we should have immigration laws. One political party no longer believes that there's anything wrong with illegal immigration, really. I mean, they won't say this out loud, but there's plenty of data I can point you to, plenty of evidence that this is, in fact, how they feel. Let me bring you up to speed on what is going on with Joaquin Castro. Now, Joaquin Castro is someone who, and this just came out today, he's, he's running for president. He's not one of the, the top contenders but he's a congressman uh, from texas i believe who is running for president and has put out and is one of the first democrats to put out what his plan is on immigration and here's the the very shortened version of what could be a a longer conversation um, and will be but he wants to decriminalize illegal entry into the United States, all right? Uh, Julian Castro wants to make sure that if somebody comes into America illegally, they are no longer to be arrested and treated as, no, it's a misdemeanor, it's a federal misdemeanor to enter, but it is still a crime. This would now be the equivalent, legally speaking, of a civil offense, a parking ticket. At the moment when the country is in the grips of the biggest immigration illegal immigration crisis perhaps in its history because remember it's not just the people crossing now it's the they say 11 more like 20 million illegals already in the country and what that does to the political parties and to our our cultural and political and social fabric in this country and rule of law and you know that's always looming in the background you already have an enormous population of legal aliens living in the country. Enormous. And now you have a, a huge surge that'll be a million more for the year if it continues at the current rate. And what do what do the Democrats do? Oh, that's right. They start to talk about how we should make it even easier. We should make their the penalties even less. And right now there's basically no penalty. It would be, and the Dallas News is reporting on this today, that, that Castro's plan would be, Turning this into a civil, not criminal violation, illegal entry. So it's like it'd be like a like a parking ticket situation now. And this is where I'm, I'm telling you, I see it right now. This is where the Democratic Party is going. They're, they're going to do everything they can to further weaken immigration enforcement. They're going to try to eliminate any real hope of interior enforcement against uh, illegal illegal aliens and then illegal entry at the border will be deprioritized as any kind of law enforcement issue. And they're just going to say, let's just process people as fast as we can, bring more of them into the country, and completely... Leave law enforcement. I mean, in the lurch. I mean, if if all of a sudden illegal entry is not really a crime, you have to ask the question: Why does border patrol even exist? Then, border patrol shouldn't be out there. You know, does border patrol's mission matter? If they're not policing crimes, what are they doing down there? Oh, they're just there to prevent drugs from flowing into the country. There's more than that, isn't there? You know, we are we are being forced to address a fundamental question about the future of this country, which is, should we have borders at all? The Democrats want to say no, but they're not ready to say no. They do not believe that we should be excluding people from the country. They do not think that there's anything wrong with illegal entry into the United States. And they have gone so far left and so out of the mainstream on this issue that I, I can't see how 2020 turns into, on immigration, anything more than a fight over. It's just going to be a fight over amnesty. They're going to offer amnesty to everybody who's here. That's what they're going to want to do. They're going to call it a pathway to citizenship. But they know that their Olinsky eyed approach here of overwhelming the system is going to be true, not just at our southern border. It's going to be true of this supposed pathway. The pathway is going to be a conveyor belt. All you have to do is be on it, and you'll get to the end, which means citizenship. You're going to tell me that people that are in the country that you know don't have English proficiency proven to the government, that don't pay back taxes when most of them would actually get money from the government because they don't make enough money to pay taxes. Uh, so they're not going to pay into the system. They're not going to pay any fine. They're not going to, you know, all, all this is all nonsense. We went through this before. We we Reagan signed an amnesty back in the 80s, and they were still hearing cases 20 years later of people who said that they were, they should have been covered by the amnesty, or there was some aspect of it, and we were promised that it would be it would stop after that. You know, it was, a, it was for a few million people the amnesty. I forget three or four million, I think it would stop after that. It only got worse. It only got bigger. Democrats want want the the incentives to come into this country uh, even even stronger than they had been in the past. Uh, even stronger than they have been before this. So we do not have partners in addressing the crisis. We have actually one side that wants to figure this out, the Republicans. And I'm not saying that they're particularly adept or skilled at it. But then on the other side, you've got people that just want to perpetuate exactly what's going on. And that's why you're going to just see the continuation of of all this dysfunction. Um, We're going to see a real lack, I think, of well, there'll be a lack of honesty in the way the Democrats talk about this, but this is we're, we're focusing on the issue. And the last week I was saying we need more focus. We need more focus. Now, here we are. And, you know, Trump's last card to play seems to be shutting down the border. Here's Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying just that play 14.
3: The president's not threatening. The president's taking his job as the commander in chief uh, very seriously in terms of protecting the American people. Everyone wants to talk about the cost of doing that. That is certainly, again, not something we want to happen. The president's the one that is responsible for the last two years of economic growth, economic boom, and the number of jobs that we have in this country. We don't want to see that hurt. But at the same time, the president's number one responsibility is to protect American life. Democrats may not care about that. They may be perfectly fine watching women and children exploited as they make the treacherous journey up from the, southern, uh, up from the South across the southern border. They may be perfectly fine seeing babies, frankly, killed right up until the moment of birth, but this president isn't. He takes his job of protecting American life very seriously, and he's going to do what it takes to make
4: sure that happens. All right.
1: Shutting down the border would at least be a demonstration of resolve from the president and and focus on the issue but i'm telling you the pressure would be too great and he'd have to relent very quickly it would not last long and it wouldn't solve the problem it just gets people to focus on the problem Uh, this is the biggest challenge the country imminent challenge the country faces right now what to do about the southern border who is showing leadership on this other than president trump i can think of very few people and that is really unsettling. We have more on this border issue and a whole lot more coming up in the show team. Stay with me.
2: Give us any money to fix it. They won't change the law to fix it. So we're going to do
1: the best with what we have. And if that means pulling people off of the ports of entry to put them out um, in, 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 on the border where there's no wall, we will absolutely do that. There's a lot of good ways to help solve this problem. Congress could do it, but they're not going to. Mexico could help us do it. They need to do a little bit more. Honduras could do more. Nicaragua do, could do more. El Salvador could do more. And if we're going to give these countries hundreds of millions of dollars, we would like them to do more. They're not going to do more, though, folks. I I, I wish it were not the case. I, I'd like to tell you that things are looking good and there's going to be some real change on the horizon that the uh, the other partners that we should have here, Mexico, uh, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala. Uh, The Democrat Party in our own country, that they would seek to, in some way, in some way that is meaningful, stem the flow of migrants. I mean, this this mass movement of people, which is what we are in the midst of, this is not a normal immigration issue. We, We are at the beginning of an immigration an illegal alien tsunami in this country. That's what is happening. People have called it an invasion. That's all. It's not a military invasion. It's an illegal alien invasion. That is what's going on here. And if you don't think that I'm giving it to you straight, even though I was down in El Paso last week, as you know, reporting on this issue and talking to Border Patrol about this, here's the Border Patrol Council VP telling us just how serious it is. Play
2: twelve. We're definitely at a crisis and it's an emergency. Uh, you know, we welcome more agents coming down here to the southern border and, and assisting. But in the end, you know, something needs to be done about the, uh, the overflow of these individuals that are coming into the country. And if there's other countries that are facilitating this invasion, uh, they obviously need to step up to the plate and, and start doing something about it. You notice what he says, an invasion.
1: Facilitating an invasion—that is the Border Patrol Council Vice President, who is just calling it like he sees it, and not mincing words. Now, you get into this back and forth, and and you, I've mentioned Julian uh, Castro before here. You know, you know, you, Castro is saying that everything that the Trump administration is trying to do is is a bad idea. Play thirteen. The idea that you would close the border or that you would cut off aid to these very countries where people are fleeing and coming to the United States is downright stupid. It's the wrong thing to do. If you close off the border, you're just going to hurt jobs in the United States. Okay, but what does Mr. What does Representative Castro think we should do? Oh, we know what he thinks we should do, which is just not enforce immigration law anymore. No longer illegal. Let people just come into the country. It's a it's a parking ticket. It's no big deal. This guy's running for president, folks. Okay, this is not I'm not picking some you know random internet troll and saying, see, this is what the left believes. And this guy is, if not a serious presidential contender, I think a lot of people view him as a very serious VP contender. I mean, he's young and you know the the optics of Castro on the ticket to the Democrats looks good. But while he's just trashing the Trump administration's desire to do something here. Border agent Raul Ortiz is just reminding everybody that this thing, this situation going on at the border is out of control. Play 15
0: double our capacity right now. I don't have have enough medics. I don't have enough Border Patrol agents to ensure that these folks are getting processed within the 48 hours that uh, we should be processing them. We're having to keep people in custody longer. Our agents are getting assaulted. Uh, Potentially could be a liability where even one of the individuals that are in custody could be assaulted in detention facilities that are overcrowded.
1: I I don't know who else we have to hear it from that this is a a crisis, that this is Something that, uh, that cannot be handled, that cannot be dealt with right now. You know, I, I, I just wonder who, who, who it is that, that the Democrats would believe. <laughs> what authority could we point to? Here, if that's not enough, Jay Johnson, Obama's DHS secretary, is like, oh, no, no, this is definitely a crisis. Play 16.
0: As Kevin McAleen and the commissioner of CBP, pointed out on Tuesday, there were 4,000 apprehensions one day alone, 4,000 on pace this month for 100,000 apprehensions. The highest we saw uh, on my watch was May 2014, 65,000. So this is a crisis. It's very definitely a crisis.
1: Yep, it is very definitely a crisis. Now, you will remember the media lied about this for the 2 months or so leading up to our current discussion. It's not a crisis, it's not a crisis. Oh no, it is a crisis. The numbers don't lie. The people working the issue don't lie. And now that we're trying to we're trying to come up with some way of dealing with this, some way of stopping this invasion as it was called, this tsunami as I like to call it, I mean just this this enormous Tidal wave of illegal entry and illegal activity or the Democrats do. They undermine and criticize Trump at, at every juncture. They have no constructive solutions whatsoever. In fact, their solutions, the things that they want to do and propose would only make it worse. Because the Democrats have shifted so far left on immigration. I mean, they are now a party that is a de facto open borders party. You know, the the law can be whatever it is. I mean, you can tell me as much as you want that the law right now says if you're an illegal alien in the United States and and you are to be deported, that is what the law states. Okay, but illegal aliens get invited to Democrats uh, by Democrats for the State of the Union address. Illegal aliens uh, march proudly in the streets and say, we demand rights. We demand this. We demand that they're not they're not being deported. It's not happening. So so the law on that issue doesn't really matter. So while you could say, Buck, but look at all the infrastructure, and all the stuff and all the laws we have at the border right now, I say to you, yeah, but they're not. It's not working. People are getting into the country who are not supposed to be in the country, who are abusing the system. They're doing it in huge numbers. They know they're doing it. It's not working. We have a near open border situation. And you know, Trump is is trying some pretty radical stuff here. I, I don't I don't think that shutting down the border will work because there will be tremendous economic pressure if he does that. There will be people who are saying, "Wow, my business is getting crushed now, dude. You can't do this." Or, Mister President, not dude, but you know what I mean. Congress won't act. I'm sitting. Are, are we going to just keep looking at this problem get worse and worse? The swell of uh, the, you know, the the surge of people get larger and larger. The southern border. I, I think the answer is. Probably yes. I think that what you end up having here is maybe some bipartisan bill come out of the Congress to just increase the resources. But if you increase the resources, all you're doing is making people more comfortable and adding to the speed with which they will be under the current asylum law introduced in the United States, never to be seen again by the authorities. So, you know, I, I wish I could. I mean, I, I know what the answers are. I just also know that the people in charge aren't going to do anything for that. Uh, they're not going to do anything to solve the situation, which is very disheartening. Let's talk about red flag laws and Second Amendment sanctuaries. This has now come up because of what's happening in Colorado, but it does have ramifications for the Second Amendment and for folks across the country. Uh, because of, well, one, there's the, the gun rights aspect, but then there's just also what happens when nullification of law occurs uh, in response to what is a perceived unconstitutional overreach? What happens when people no longer have respect that the other side is acting on or has the expectation the other side is acting on good faith? when it comes to the way that they're uh, writing laws and then trying to enforce laws. So you got a sheriff in Colorado who has said that he would rather go to jail. That's got a lot of attention. There. rather go to jail than enforce a new gun control bill that has been passed by the uh, legislature in the state of Colorado, which, as we know, is a purple state. So you get some some very, very Democrat stuff going on Denver, you know, very Democrat. And yet there's also some red areas of Colorado, too. And you have these red flag laws. Now, red flag law, I think they exist in 15 different states right now. Guess what? Mostly blue Democrat states, from what I understand. Uh, but you have these red flag laws where a law enforcement officer or an individual, I believe, uh, I, I think you have to be a fa- You might have to be a family member. But there's the, the, individuals can go forward and say uh, to a judge that someone is a threat that their firearms, uh, the firearms that they have in their possession are a threat, and they can be taken away. Now, this is on many levels both, you know, reasonable and unreasonable, or reasonable and concerning. You know, it's reasonable because you'd say to yourself, hold on a second, mean, a temporary, it's effectively a temporary restraining order, which I've talked about in the past, and I can see some wisdom to this, as long as it's very clearly spelled out, but and 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 is respectful of of the rights of law-abiding gun owners. But you see, the problem here is that what you really have is an open door for abuse. I mean, the problem that you run into is that one, this is going to be almost an entirely ineffective. I mean, you, you know, this is. You're hoping that the one person that you're trying to stop from doing something bad with a gun, that they're going to go to the court in time to stop him. And, you know, they'll tell you that all this might stop mass shootings or listen, you know, very, very unlikely. So from an effectiveness standpoint, I think it's, it's very it's dubious. But from a rights from a Second Amendment standpoint, you are on just the order of a judge losing your Second Amendment rights without the ability to defend yourself. I don't mean defend yourself with the Second Amendment. I mean, without the you if they convince the judge in your absence that you are a danger, they can take. Now, the, the laws are a little different state to state, too. So I mean, this Colorado one is what I'm focused on right now. Uh, but they can take your guns away or or your gun away. And I think we all know that whether we're talking about a contentious personal relationship or, you know, there's just any number of ways that this could be abused and so i understand i fundamentally understand why you would have someone who's a, a sheriff for example in colorado who just says look i'm, I'm not going to do this i'm not going to take i'm not going to go into someone's home who has not been accused of a crime we got to remember this is not about being a crime this is about somebody who's just a danger to themselves or others this is an, an entire entirely mental health oriented diagnosis that people who don't have a background of that are going to be making decisions on And it's essentially a a pre-crime removal of or, you know, I don't know if you call it pre-crime, but, you know, it's a pre-crime removal of a Second Amendment right from somebody. Now it is temporary. You can challenge it. uh, You know, there's a fort. What is it now? Uh, The Colorado version, quote, would allow family members or others. See, it is open to others to petition a judge to remove people's guns if they're deemed an extreme risk to themselves or others. If the judge agrees, each person would lose the right to purchase or possess firearms for 364 days. They would be able to file a protest request to order to to have the order reversed. You know, this is what I mean. You know, you're you're this is like when people say, oh, if you're on the no fly list, you shouldn't be able to have a gun. Well, the no fly list is not an adjudicated list. It's just a bureaucratic list. And this is a judge who would be able to say, you know what, you uh, you are no longer able to own a gun because these people and it's not clear necessarily who the people are in this instance these people say you should not have one that you're a danger to yourself or to others so if somebody's just really sad and you know maybe having a little too much a little too much of grandpa's old cough medicine a little too much scotch late at night you know and they own a firearm is is someone going to be able to say well they shouldn't own that firearm they could do something bad with it i i think that this opens up problems, and I don't think it really solves many problems. Uh, I, I, Unlike a lot of other gun control measures, though, I at least, and this is kind of how I started off this discussion, I at least think that this one, by proponents of it, some proponents of it, is, is intended in good faith. This isn't a completely, this isn't a worthless idea. This isn't, you know, ban bump stocks, which, okay, do nothing but, you know, bump stocks. And I know some of you don't even like the ban on the bump stocks and you've written, I've gotten, I've read your emails. I am very aware that you think the bump stock ban, because it's really banning a style of firing a weapon. It's like banning eating with your left hand with a fork instead of your right. I mean, you can't, you know, a, a bump stock is not really something that changes the internal mechanism at all of the rifle, as you know. Anyway, um, but then you also, the, the, so that's at the, at the gun control level of this. There, there's some, some nuance and some different layers. Um, but then you get to the what happens when you start having sheriffs who say, I'm just not going to I'm not going to comply with that. Uh, you get a sense of the gun, the real gun grabbers in this country who want to just find a way. And we saw what happened from the the anti-gun left after the New Zealand massacre, the mosque massacre that, that happened. Uh, the left is always looking for a way, always looking for an opening to try and eliminate you know guns from private hands in this country i mean and yet it's such a far-fetched idea logistically never mind constitutionally and legally that it's it's hard to take it seriously other than we know they have the desire but you all know this and a lot of you are from parts of the country where this is much more true than certainly where i live in dc where very 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 few people own guns the federal government going door to door to take people's guns would be disastrous um, in a lot of ways and in ways that I don't have to uh, spell out to you. But you know, local law enforcement, sheriffs and, and local police departments deciding that they won't go along with this just goes to show you how, meaning they won't go along in this case with this red flag law, that there's not a... Uh, a sense of good faith from the other side on this issue and that there's now the the debate over guns has become so toxic and so politicized people just would prefer to to non law enforcement would prefer to non-comply in some in some instances you know and this is why when i talk about the the erosion of legal standards that are rooted in principle and rooting in plain understanding of the law you know there are there are ramifications to this stuff uh you know the same way and democrats like to play this game a lot where they'll just i mean oh oh, daca is effectively executive branch nullification of immigration law that's what it is that's what president obama did and when you start to see one side do this just in order to keep pace with the overreach that you're seeing from your political opponents, it becomes then more likely that, that you as a Republican, as a conservative, you'll say, you know what? Well, we're just not going to enforce this law. It's like when I say, okay, we're not going to enforce immigration law. Maybe we should enforce the uh, income tax either and see how long that works for us. Oh, Buck, you can't do that. You know, well, the same the same thinking that tells people that you can have deferred action for childhood arrivals because Obama says so that that same thinking could be, well, we just think that the IRS should prioritize, you know, only people who have stolen more than $10 million from the government should be prosecuted. Everybody else, you you get a warning and a request for payment. Everybody else. That actually probably sounds like a pretty good system to me. You know, the first time around, you okay, send us our money, right? No, no one goes to prison the first time unless you've stolen you know more than a million or more than 10 million from the government. And even then, the prison sentence shouldn't be very long, as you could tell. This is where I start to turn into a little bit of a radical anarchist because I hate paying taxes and it's about to be tax season here. Or it is tax season. Oh, gosh. A day when every American should be forced to send a check to the government just for a reminder purpose. We'll be right back. Today we're at Florida International University talking
4: to students about their opinions of socialism. And if they'd support a socialist GPA policy, would they be willing to share their high GPA with people that have a low GPA? Because after all, it's all about equality. Which would you rather have in America, socialism or capitalism? I would say socialism. How do you view the word socialism, favorably or unfavorably? I guess I would go with favorably. I'd rather people have that same opportunity. It's a lot of excess in America. The main idea of socialism being that people at the, at the top are doing their fair share to help people at the bottom, trying to prevent disparity of income and trying to prevent excess, as you called it. So on campus, if there's a, a GPA disparity where there's people at the bottom with a poor GPA, mm-hmm. would you support a policy where people at the top spread the wealth and give that GPA to people at the bottom?
0: Give? Like, help them get a better GPA?
4: Yeah.
0: I'm all for helping. I wouldn't give, like, oh, let me just give you some of my poor. But
4: it's about being fair, right? We got to help people at the bottom.
0: I've lost a lot of sleep, so I don't know if I will be fair. It's hard. If I
2: guess it would be kind of like hypocritical for me to say no. That's
1: completely different. Yeah, you, you don't say. How's it different? Those are, different. That, those like, are our friends from from degree. Campus Reform asking uh, on a campus because it's Campus Reform. You know, do you do you support socialism and? A lot of kids say yes these days. I mean, when I say kids, these are young adults. these are people who generally speaking on a campus can vote and i, I just saw some polling data it was from an old poll, but you know something like forty percent of the people in this poll uh, who are millennials, if if memory serves, think that socialism is a better socialism is better than capitalism. This is a theory that is growing i mean it wasn 't long ago that I think It would have been considered completely bizarre to hear anybody on a college campus uh, walking around saying that socialism is, is better than capitalism for students, for professors a little different. There are these Marxist professors walking around. But, you know, we've gotten a bit far from the fall of the Soviet Union and the lesson that the world and unfortunately many, many hundreds of millions of people had to learn the hard way. The lesson of, of what comes from from socialism uh, but i think it's interesting to watch how the democrats have to grapple with whether they're just going to be honest about what they want for 2020 whether, whether they're going to run as open democratic socialists because that's what the platform is you know medicare for all and uh, these other uh green new deal program and you know you, you look at free college and this is this is all what you would expect in a european welfare state uh, i'll I'll note that the the president did and i you you heard a bit of the skepticism in my voice about this for the last week or so when when all of a sudden health care has come up the president's now said that a health care repeal and replace or reform or whatever it is they're going to do is not going to happen until after the 2020 election It's probably the right move because they didn't seem like they were ready uh, for this public debate again. They didn't seem like they're ready for this fight. And that's why they're backing off it, which which is smart, I think. Let's focus on the economy, focus on immigration and on problems where the Democrats don't really have a leg to stand on, so to speak. Uh, Trump, they got rid of the Congress, got rid of the individual mandate penalty. I mean, there have been some things done. They have worked. To try and lower the price of prescription drugs very very important uh problem to tackle and yet they don't really seem to understand that if all people hear about a healthcare reform is that you can stay on your parents insurance until you're 26 and that people with pre-existing conditions will be covered oh and a lot of people that have insurance now would lose it under their plan even though most of them uh, would go back to having other plans um and you know the the ones that have any kind of a private plan and the ones that are on medicaid expansion i mean medicaid is a very ineffective healthcare program and a very expensive one in addition to that so there should be better ways and states experimenting to cover people who would need medicaid would be a better move uh giving states greater control and the, this is—they're not the Republicans were not ready for this one, and and I could sense it. And I think that they're making the right move by at least for now shelving this debate. Because if you're going to come out, don't let the Democrats replay, you know, 2012. Don't let the Democrats come out with the same talking points and win on this one. Um, and let's focus on socialism. I mean, let's really have that debate. Let's really have a discussion about whether this country should increasingly embrace. The idea that there is a a a basic need that the government has to fulfill to take from some to give to others because it's the right thing to do, according to the people doing the taking. That the government should be. And if we're going to have a more classical definition of socialism, maybe the government is in control of the means of production. We're a ways away from that. But we're increasingly in a a place where the government certainly is in control of the distribution of what is produced or the government has greater control over that than it has in the past Uh, and and i do want 2020 to be something of a referendum on socialism i I want to be because then it's also referendum on on statism and on big government and on unconstitutional overreach by federal authority you know that's that all gets tied into this debate over socialism let's make it You know, a contest between MAGA and the Sanders AOC vision of the future. That's what I'm hoping happens. So we'll continue to focus on that. Big hour two coming up. My friend Andy McCarthy from National Review is going to join just to tell us what happens now. Mueller probe is over, but there's this fight over the full report. Oh, they have to see the full report. Uh, What will that mean? Will the grand jury information get released? Will there be fights over this? How does executive privilege weigh in on what information uh, we can see? And, and that's, you know, and also I just want to ask him about whether the president should really be concerned about any possible legal jeopardy going forward. I mean, is that something that we really also need to be aware of? You know, could, could Trump find himself indicted by someone by some other federal authority or maybe some state authority even? Uh, Andy, who was at the Southern District of New York for decades, can tell us all about that. And uh, we have oh so much more team coming your way. So uh, we'll be back in just a moment. You know, when you put on a pair of jeans you haven't worn in a long time, you find a 20 in the back pocket, you go, "Ooh, it's my day. Well, think about the money that you currently have sitting around doing nothing in that 401k account from, you know, the job before last, one that you're not really paying attention to. That money is just sitting there gathering financial dust. It could be working a lot harder for you in a precious metals IRA. My friends at Noble Gold can see if you qualify. They'll do all the hard work for you on this, and this could make you a lot and cost you nothing. Give Noble Gold a call at 877-646-5347, or this is really easy. Just text my name, B-U-C-K, that's text BUCK, to 511-511 and receive their free investor's guide. Plus, for all qualified IRAs above $20,000, they'll include a complimentary rare-graded Morgan Silver dollar valued at $150. Just go to... NobleGoldInvestments.com or text Buck to 511 511. Individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard tax rates may apply.
3: There's no reason why the Attorney General can't seek court permission to disclose all the grand jury material, which could be a sizable portion of that report. Uh, That has been the precedent uh, in Watergate. Um,
4: And at the end of the day, we're not going to allow this Attorney General handpicked by the President uh, to oppose the obstruction case uh, to bury uh, Mueller's uh, report and findings. So we're going to insist that it comes out.
1: There you have Adam Schiff, who has learned nothing, apparently, the last two years. Isn't isn't budging much at all from his collusion delusions. Well, now it's, I guess, the the obstruction construction. Uh, but we got somebody who can tell us what's coming next in all this and and what our expectations should be. And uh, the fun part is he's been right all along, unlike Schiff, who's been wrong all along. We got Andy McCarthy with us now of National Review, also a Fox News contributor. Andy, great to have you back. Uh Bob what do you great ma- to be with you. Thanks so much, man. What what do you make of, of Schiff here trying to say that, you know, the f first of all the hand picked, I mean the little kind of, you know, the little Kidney punches he's throwing, and no one's looking. The handpicked AG. Well, every president handpicks it. I mean, like, what, what does that even mean? Um, but saying that that he's not going to let him interfere in the obstruction case—is he really trying to say that they may try to bring a political obstruction case against the president, or does he still think there's some prayer of of a, of a criminal proceeding?
3: Well, I think they've always thought, Buck, that they could bring political charges of some kind. After all. Um, impeachment, which has hovered over this thing from mm. the beginning, I think it's less likely now. Although it's not off the table, it's less likely now that we know that Mueller has not, you know, come out with any uh, smoking gun, and it looks like most of his report um, exonerates the president at least on, at least on legal. Uh, issues, you know, political issues are a different story. But, you know, Congress doesn't need a penal offense, uh, you know, a, an actual felony like I used to prosecute in federal court in order to impeach a president. Uh, back in, uh, I think it was 1970 or 71, ironically, Jerry Ford, uh, who was then the minority leader in congress trying to impeach uh, justice william o douglas i think at the time it's ironic because ford ends up becoming president because of an impeachment effort against uh, nixon who who resigns rather than be impeached uh, but ford back in 1970 or 71 said that uh, an impeachable offense is anything that the house of representatives decides that it is at a certain point in history so yes they can you know they can do this politically but as the I think the smarter democrats have said uh or at least you know grudgingly conceded um you know unless you have a consensus unless you have such egregious misconduct that cuts across that you know the the outrage over it cuts across uh, partisan and ideological lines you're not going to have an impeachable offense so you might as well
1: forget about it so so where does this go though in terms of the the you know the grand jury information that may be contained in the uh the the Mueller report i mean you know there's now where are we in finding out you know what's in it how much do we get to see and and what do you think the play is going to be for democrats i mean i know they're going to find something in there to say see this proves something but what do you see happening
3: well i think the grand jury issue is largely an empty bag that they're fighting over buck in, in this sense um, you know there's no doubt that Barr, in his letter talks about the need to scrub uh grand jury information from the report because of legal requirements there's there's a requirement by federal law of grand jury secrecy uh not to get too deep in the weeds on this but when i was a prosecutor Especially where I practice, the law is different from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in the Second Circuit, it was pretty common um, to, if you needed to get a disclosure of grand jury information, just go to a judge and get a disclosure order. Uh, but it, the interesting thing, if you read Rule 6E, which controls all this, just the federal rules of, of criminal procedure, there's nothing in Rule 6E that expressly makes uh, dissemination to Congress a rationale for for unsealing grand jury information, and the reason that matters is there's a big appellate case in the D.C. Circuit right now, which is where, of course, all this action is taking place in Washington. Right, um, the the case of the D.C. Circuit, which is called McKeever versus Sessions, concerns whether a judge has authority outside the, the strict provisions of Rule 6E, just like a generalized authority to unseal grand jury minutes. And what the Justice Department has argued in that case is that the, the judge is stuck with the rationales that are laid out in Rule 6E. You can't just like make up you know, I think it would be fair to disseminate this to Congress, so therefore I can disseminate it to Congress. So that precise issue is in front of the court now, and the Justice Department has taken a position on it. So it would be impossible for Barr, with the Justice Department having, or, having argued in the, in the D.C. Circuit, that a judge doesn't have authority outside the rule to suddenly say that a judge does. Um, I think the reason I say all this may be an empty bag, Buck, is – As I understand it, most of the important witnesses that the Democrats would care about cooperated with Mueller's investigation without the need of going into the grand jury. He didn't need to subpoena them. They sat for interviews. Those interviews and whatever Mueller made of them are not grand jury material. They're not covered by grand jury secrecy. So in the end, the grand jury, I think, may turn out to be less of an issue than executive privilege, which becomes an important issue because it's one thing for White House officials to speak to a federal prosecutor, which is what Barr, uh, which is what Mueller was, because that's within the executive branch and it doesn't waive privilege. It's quite another thing to disclose it to Congress and the public, which would require a waiver of privilege. So I think while we're having all this hullabaloo about the grand jury now, when it gets, it gets down to brass tacks, executive privilege. Is yeah, it's the executive privilege.
1: Component that. of it. Yeah, that that makes that makes sense to me, Andy. Um, you know, I, I also just wanted to to get your sense as to how how do you how do you assess now that it's it's done, Mueller's actions here. You know, you know what what do you think was fair? What was unfair? You know, now that we can actually look back on on a, on a game that has been played, and you know, the whistle's been blown. What do you think yeah. about how the way Mueller conducted this whole thing?
3: Well, I, I mostly um, am am not very favorable toward it. I, I will say one thing: I think the silver lining of Mueller's appointment is that it wrested control of a counterintelligence investigation from the FBI to Mueller. Um, And I think, Buck, that 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 turns out to be very interesting. As, As we've talked about a number of times, counterintelligence investigations in the Justice Department don't get a prosecutor because it's not prosecutor work. You're not trying to build a criminal case. So it was unusual to take it away from the Bureau, which runs counterintelligence, and give it to a federal Prosecutor, And I think a lot of that was to allow him to conduct, conduct a criminal investigation under the guise of counterintelligence. But on the other hand, what I thought, Buck, is a very interesting fact that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is that the last Carter Page FISA warrant was issued in June, around mid to late June of 2017, probably a couple of weeks, maybe a month after Mueller was appointed while he was still kind of getting his bearings. And they did go back to court in June and get another one. The interesting thing, Buck, is that's a 90-day warrant, which means it would have been due to be reauthorized in September of 2017, by which point Mueller would have been really up and running. He'd have been running the investigation for four months. He'd He'd have been on top of everything. In, in September, they don't go back to reauthorize the warrant, and by then, everybody who's been involved in the warrant is gone. Uh, Comey's been removed, McCabe's been sidelined, Baker's gone, Strzok and Page are gone. Everybody who was the, you know, the key group of agents and the key group of Justice Department officials who were behind using the card, using the Steele dossier to get surveillance warrants from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They're all gone. And Mueller, when it's his call to make, decides we're not going to do that. And I believe that that's why we can conclude. That's a big reason why we conclude that there was probably by the end of 2017, probably by the the mid-autumn of 2017, I I think they knew there was no collusion case.
1: And do you think that is there any doubt in your mind that the dossier, based on what we've been told and what's been out there so far, that the dossier was a a substantial and the kind of the the sine qua non of getting the FISA applications or getting the FISA I, warrants? I think,
3: Buck, without you and me having to speculate about this, because, we, you know, we haven't seen the unredacted warrants. um Senator Graham, Grassley and Senator Graham, who have seen them, say that without the the dossier, there's no way they had enough to, to seek a warrant. And Andy McCabe in and his testimony when he was deputy director of the FBI and his testimony in Congress has, has conceded as much. So I think we can safely say, uh, especially now that Mueller's gotten to the end of the rainbow and told us emphatically that there was no criminal collusion, I think we can safely say that if they didn't have, you know, if they had other information, we'd have heard about it.
1: Is is the president out of any realistic possibility of criminal jeopardy here, Andy? Not just in the, I mean, just in general.
3: From uh, Mueller's investigation, yes. Um, You know, we don't, the Southern District of New York investigation is continuing, so um and that's on a different it's in a different place and on a different uh rhythm being run by different people and looking at different stuff than Mueller looked at but i think you know the major uh the major alleged misconduct even though it, it it's hard for me to say alleged because it was on it looks like it was on the basis of uh of virtually nothing but the major allegation of misconduct against trump was an espionage conspiracy with russia and I think he's he's passed that hurdle. And then, of course, there was the obstruction, which I never thought was much of anything. But, um, you know, I think you asked me before, what did I think of the way Mueller handled this? I think it's really um, does not speak well of him that he abdicated on the one question that they really that he was arguably needed to answer. I mean, I think there was no collusion case. And he probably knew that very early on. And this basically came to him, Buck, as a as an obstruction investigation. He was retained or he was appointed right on the heels of Comey's firing. And right after McCabe opened an obstruction case against the president at the FBI uh, and he spent 22 months, as Mueller did, looking at obstruction and in the end, he said, "Well, you know, look, I'll 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 give you the facts on both sides of the question, and then um, you know." do
1: you agree with the, with Professor Dershowitz and others who say that not only was that weird, but it's really unethical and unfair that 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 the that Mueller needed to make a call one way or the other and not do this? Well, I could have, but I didn't.
3: Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know that I would say it was unethical, but I do think it does have ethical implications, and that is this, Buck. They're, you're not supposed to have a special counsel unless there's two things. There's got to be concrete grounds for a criminal investigation, which means a crime to investigate. And secondly, a conflict of interest that is so profound the Justice Department can't, within the ethical rules, run the case itself. So what do we see Mueller doing here? Mueller comes because there's supposedly a conflict for justice, yet he um, recruits his staff from the upper echelons of the supposedly conflicted Justice Department. When he returns indictments or files indictments, he transfers a a bunch of them to the component parts of the supposedly uh, conflicted Justice Department. And in the end, the only decision that he had to make he, he basically delegated it to the attorney general who runs the supposedly conflicted Justice Department. So you have to ask, why did we need a special counsel? If the Justice Department was capable of doing all this, what did we need a special counsel for?
1: Very good question. Andy McCarthy, everybody, you should uh, follow his work on a uh, N- National Review. And Andy, you got a podcast over there, right?
3: I do. It's called The McCarthy Report, so it should be easy enough to remember.
1: All right. <laughs> right, the McCarthy very, very Report. Very remember me. <laughs> there we go. And look for Andy on Fox News, everybody. Andy, thanks so much for your time, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Team, we'll be back in just a moment. Back in February, Leadership Institute field organizer Hayden Williams was peacefully helping conservative students recruit for their group at UC Berkeley when he was viciously attacked by a radical leftist thug. Since then, President Trump has taken action, signing an executive order to protect students' free speech, including conservatives, my friends, but more action is needed. You can take that action now. Support the Leadership Institute and defend conservative students. Just go to takebackthecampus.org. The Leadership Institute is the premier organization for educating and training conservative college students. With your gift of as little as $5 a month, you can help conservative college students stand up to the intimidation and physical attacks of radical leftist campus bullies. The left's effort to silence conservative voices on college campuses in America has been going on for too long. So please visit TakeBackTheCampus.org to make your urgent gift to the Leadership Institute today. That's TakeBackTheCampus.org. Take backthecampus.org.
2: Nothing you give them, whether it's Shifty Shift or Jerry Nadler, it's a 400 page report, right? We could give them 800 pages and it wouldn't be enough. They spent over $30 million on an investigation. They found no collusion, which, by the way, was the most ridiculous premise I've ever heard of anyway. And you understand exactly what I mean. No collusion. There was no collusion. There never was. After $30 million, we're going to start this process again because Jerry Nadler wants to start it or because Schiff wants to start it? I'll rely on the attorney general to make decisions. But I will tell you, anything that's given to them will never be good enough. So I think it's somewhat of a waste of time. This is just politics at a very low level.
1: The president's absolutely right. And we know he's right. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt, my friends. Democrats are pretending like they they have not watched at least many of them are pretending like they have not watched the complete deflation and eradication of their favorite conspiracy theory the one that says that president trump somehow for some reason and without it being you know uh, able to without them being able to produce any evidence of but he he colluded with the russians to cheat in the election. And this is why, and I know we just talked to Andy about this, but you can already hear Democrats saying, oh, well, now, now we're going to try to get him on obstruction. What they what they really need to figure out, and, and I think that they haven't made up their minds on this because it's a purely political calculation. It's not based in the law. It's not based in what's ethical or right. It's just what will help the Democrats take back power in 2020. Are they going to impeach him? Can they find some justification there? They know it's not going to be collusion, but now maybe there's some way that they can get him on obstruction. I mean, the fact that the Southern District of New York still has ongoing investigations and there's all these investigations of the president. Can you imagine if there were ongoing federal investigations of Obama that were just fishing expeditions, just just looking for something? You get a bunch of AUSAs, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys and, and FBI agents just going through all the, you know, all of Obama's you, know, you go back to what was that the, that guy, uh, Tony Rezco, and go back to uh, domestic terrorist Bill Ayers. And, uh, you know, you look look at all these figures from Obama's past. Imagine if the FBI just started investigating all that, you know, all these different people and all the different connections. Uh, the, the media would have completely lost their minds. And at least some of that stuff sounds like it could have happened or, or did happen. Um, whether there was criminal activity or not, you'd have to figure it out. But what we have here is just the endless investigation of endless investigations. I mean, they're not going to stop. They're they're never going to stop because they cannot accept that they were wrong and they cannot accept that they lost. He walked up to me and wrapped his hands around my
4: face like that and pulled me in and started rubbing noses with me. Um, and it wasn't, you know, like an Eskimo kiss or and then stop it was for like a good fifteen seconds and I remember thinking, is he gonna kiss me? It's not rape. But it doesn't need to be rape to not be right.
1: That's Amy Lapos, second accuser of inappropriate conduct. Let's be very clear. Not sexual assault or but inappropriate conduct. And as she said, it's not it's not rape, but that doesn't mean that it that it's okay um even weirder the conduct in this instance uh, allegedly even weirder than what was initially said it, it wasn't like a, a quick eskimo kiss it, it kept going eskimo kiss apparently where you rub noses briefly and he kept rubbing his nose against her nose i'm sorry it's super weird folks i know you know that but you know they they can try to contort reality as much as they want, they can do all this different stuff. They do everything in their power to make it seem like this isn't a super creepy weirdo thing to do. It is a super creepy weirdo thing to do. I don't care how much they, you know, they 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 try to explain this away. Uh, there's something very very strange about Joe Biden's behavior. I mean, you've got uh, Gillibrand and Pelosi wing, and now Pelosi said earlier today. That it's not disqualifying, but Democrats, you see, they want to give Biden a pass, but they can't say that. So what they'll say is there shouldn't be consequences, but there should be a conversation. Republicans get consequences. Democrats get a conversation. Let's talk about this. Republicans should lose their jobs, never, never be in public life again, be, you know, And, and in some cases, as we know, like with Kavanaugh, based on lies based on lies. Democrats based on truth. No, no, no consequences. Let's just have a conversation. Here's what uh, Gillibrand and Pelosi said. Play 19.
4: These women feel demeaned, and that's not okay. So if Vice President Biden does choose to run for President of the United States, I imagine this is a conversation he will
2: be ha- having to have with the American people.
4: I know of Joe Biden a long time. My grandchildren love Joe Biden. I mean, he's a, he's an affectionate person to children, to senior citizens, to, to everyone. That's just the way he is. He has to understand in the world that we're in now that... Um, People's space is important to them. And what's important is how they receive it, not necessarily how you intended it.
1: He's an affectionate person. Have you seen all the all the photos and all the video and everything that's out there of of how Biden acts? Do you think that if Biden had an R next to his name, if he were a member of the G.O.P.? Would these women in the Democratic Party, these prominent women, Nancy Pelosi, third in line for the presidency, folks. That'll help you sleep at night. Uh, These women. Coming out to defend Biden would not do it if this were a Republican. So this is not about principle. This is about power. Um, But Biden's stuff is really weird. I understand it's not. It's not a huge deal. I'm not trying to make it a huge deal. It's really more than anything else, another instance where we see how dishonest the media is and how the double standards are absolutely everywhere. Um, I think that Biden's going to flame out very quickly. Once he gets in, there'll be this recognition that this guy, they're so desperate for a return to what seemed like the political inevitability of Obamaism to the left, and yes, Obama did win two elections and was in, was in office for eight years, that they they think that Biden can be a kind of restorative figure back to that glorious time for the Democrat Party. Although, you know, when Obama was in office, the Democrat Party was decimated as a party. Um, it lost a tremendous amount of seats in the state legislatures, a lot of. You know, House and Senate seats lost. I mean, there there was a lot that did not go well for the Democrats while Obama was in office. Obama was not somebody whose political popularity translated to other members of his party. That just didn't happen. In fact, I think that the party had to uh, bear a lot of consequences because of who uh, Obama, because of Obama's policies. Uh, but there is an obvious double standard here, and we're going to see that continue with Biden some of the old statements that he made that people in the media tried to say were funny or lighthearted uh when they when you see them again now you'll say hold on the same media that will dredge up audio tape of somebody from 10 years ago or that will completely lose their minds over uh, a photo or something that someone did 30 years ago in terms of inappropriate i'm not talking about crimes but you know inappropriate conduct or insensitive conduct they're going to try to make it sound like Oh, Uncle Joe Biden, he's not creepy. He's just, oh, he is. He's, he's, a, he's a creepster. Saying that he's really affectionate. These women didn't think it was normal. These women didn't think that, you know, I, I can tell you this. I have never tried to Eskimo kiss a fellow employee, male or female. Never gone for the Eskimo kiss. Um, no matter how, what kind of mood I was in, no matter how I was feeling, never leading into, the, hey, can we, just, can we just rub noses for a second, just a little nose rub? Nope. That did not happen. Oh, but speaking of double standards, uh, there's a second accuser against Justin Fairfax, lieutenant governor of Virginia. Uh, and there was a story today in The New York Times, y- you can't make this up, about how that just, that, that whole political scandal in Virginia, well, it just went, you know, poof, it just disappeared Oh, well, this is so surprising, guys. How did these scandals in Virginia, you know, I, I love the media. I mean, the media is like the guy who lights the house on fire, and then whatever arrives goes, isn't it the craziest thing? This house is on fire. I don't know how this happened. You know, they, They're like the arsonist and firefighter at the same time. Hey, hey, let's get some buckets of water to throw out, the, to put out this fire I just started. Yeah, the, the media covered up the whole Fairfax situation. Well, they covered it up initially by not reporting on it, and now they're letting it wither away, and they're just going to move on from it, but Meredith Watson, who's the second accuser for Fairfax, she's saying she wish she came out sooner, and, and you know, this is still a story. Play 20. I feel guilty.
2: Why do you feel guilty?
0: It happened to her after it happened to me. And had I had the strength or the courage to say something in 2000, Maybe it never would have happened to her. It was a huge betrayal. He was my friend. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you do that to somebody that you've been a friend to and who's confided in you about things. I just don't understand how you do that.
1: Does anyone think that that doesn't sound like a credible retelling of events and that that woman is sharing anything other than real pain and real, real angst resulting from an assault against her? I mean, I, I don't think a woman can sound— I mean, c- compare that, uh, that story that she's telling, the way she's telling it, how she sounds when she's telling it, to, say, Julie Swetnick, the third accuser of Kavanaugh, who Democrats were willing to initially believe just because. Uh, I find Meredith Watson entirely credible and believable. There's nothing about her story that does not add up. Where are the me to uh, mobs? Where where are the people that you know storm Capitol Hill that get all angry at Republicans that you know did everything to stop Kavanaugh? And I, I don't know. I don't I don't see them all of a sudden. They're, they've just disappeared. They're almost like the anti war left that just evaporated under the Obama administration when Obama increased the troops in Afghanistan to over hundred thousand. Where were all the? The Code Pink protesters then. Where were all the anti-war leftists? Oh, they're just more important things, apparently, than stopping the massive escalation of a war that, by the way, resulted in more U.S. casualties. The Obama administration racked up more U.S. casualties in Afghanistan than the eight years of Bush or, so far, the two years of Trump put together. So... Not a lot of interest there, obviously, from the left. and same thing here. It's just all all about the, the the jockeying and jostling for power for the leftists. There's not they I have a hard time taking them seriously on these matters because they pretend to be advocates for a certain principle, but really they are just pushing to be in greater control and they want to just trash the other side. That's the primary motivation that they have for so much of this. Meredith Watson sounds like a woman in a lot of pain with a lot of, um, you know, who, who needs and deserves a lot of sympathy for what happened to her. And yes, you could say, Buck, that was in an interview. The media is obviously talking to her. Okay, but it's how they talk to her, how often they talk to her. Is this a front page news story or is this on the back pages? Is this something to talk about once in a while or is this something that they make a repeat story so that, The heat gets turned up on Fairfax to resign. You know the answers to this. They don't want Fairfax to resign for the optics and for the fact that you'd have a major Democrat that would be going down in in the state of Virginia, a very important state in the 2020 election. So that's what's happening here. The stories just went poof about Northam, about Fairfax, about Herring. Oh, and the media's like, how did that happen? We all know how it happened.
2: There's a lot of things I know about Joe Biden. I've known him for a long time. He is extremely affectionate.
4: He's very affectionate. I find oddly affectionate. He kisses (laughs) people on the mouth. I've seen him rub the shoulders of women and men. Joe Biden calls them expressions. Of affection, Uncle Joe, as we affectionately call him,
0: very, very affectionate.
4: He's touchy feely. He's been doing it his entire life in a in an affectionate way. He
0: suffers from uh, being uh, overtly affectionate.
4: To say that you know Biden should
2: change the way he is or that he needs to be less affectionate, I think, is a problem. I think the next time I see Joe Biden, if he doesn't hug me and give me a kiss and hold my hand, that's
3: not the Joe Biden I knew. He's a nice guy. He's not a predator, and this is ridiculous. Let me just say it. This is ridiculous.
1: I just want to know what's ridiculous. I mean, you know, Mika there is in is in high dudgeon. It is ridiculous, sir. You know, it's, I mean, it's like she was at the spa, and they didn't have the proper organic lemon peel slices to put in her deionized water. I mean, she's very upset, uh, but... I just want to know what's ridiculous is there's no let's be clear about this. There's no allegation out there about Biden doing any of this stuff that anyone really disputes. It's just a question of how creepy and how big a deal it is. It's definitely creepy. So on the one to 10 creepiness scale, you know, where does it fall Uh, and and how much should people care about it? Those are all fine things. But to be so outraged about it, I mean, they accuse Republicans of stuff that didn't even happen and we're supposed to take action against them. Right. They accuse Republicans. They lie about Republicans like Kavanaugh to take them down. And, you know, they they seem to think that we are just going to, like, let this go. That Biden is a weird he's a weirdo. Nuzzling somebody's nose, you don't know in a professional environment or in a professional setting where you have power, where you are in control is weird. Okay, no one's saying that Biden should go to prison or he's a terrible person or anything like that. We're just saying the guy's a weirdo. right, the same, you know, does it matter that Elizabeth Warren is not actually a Cherokee and that she lied about being a Cherokee to advance herself professionally for many, many years? I mean it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things in life, but does it should it matter in terms of her judgment to the American people that she thought, oh, I'm gonna say I'm one 1,024th Cherokee, so that proves me right. Is that weird? Yeah, that's very weird. Okay, that's also very, very weird. And you know satire and and mockery are things that these that these democrats they can't handle it uh they cuz the so much of the of the pitch for them is the construct around whatever the media is telling people but if people are are snickering behind your back because they know that you're actually kind of a a strange a strange bird you know a strange duck is a strange duck stranger than a strange bird I don't know quack quack um that's very hard, then, to, to keep the mythology around people going. Um, but speaking of being a bit strange, a little transition here into the latest from better O'Rourke, who is really a combination of the guy uh, from—what's the, what's the movie? Oh, yeah. is really a combination of Napoleon Dynamite and Keanu Reeves in the 90s.
0: Yeah, like,
1: I just totally—I just want to run for president and have you put all of your hopes and dreams— like in this basket that I'm going to carry around. Does anyone else care? Again, not a big deal, but a little weird that Beto only seems to wear blue button down shirts. Is it the same shirt? Does he just have a closet full of you'll see this. I've never seen him not wearing a blue button down shirt with rolled up sleeves. Is this the Beto uniform? Um, Not a big deal. Not going to solve world peace. Not going to cure cancer, whether Beto changes his shirt or not, but... It's a little weird. You know what else is weird? That he thinks that, you know what people really want? More town halls. (laughs) With, with, uh, oh man, with elected, or with appointed officials. Not even elected officials. Play clip nine.
4: That's why as president... I'll sign an executive order on the first day in office requiring every single cabinet secretary to hold a town hall meeting like this every single month. To listen to you and to be accountable to you so that we deliver for you. (laughs) Democracy is what we need if this country is going to make it. I mean, that just sounds so horrible.
1: Yeah, every month, every, you're going to have to like have the department, like the the secretary of Health and Human Services is gonna to have to sit and a bunch of like random people who don't know anything about the issue per se are gonna ask questions and we're gonna televise it. <laughs> this is a great idea, Beto. Oh, uh, You're amazing, you're an amazing fella, Mr. Beto. He also just says other things that are that are demonstrably uh, bizarre and untrue. Play, uh, play 8.
2: I've
4: had these kinds of challenges in the lifetimes of anyone in this auditorium, regardless of how young or how old you are. This economy, this this unprecedented concentration of wealth and power and privilege, we haven't seen since the last true progressive era that Senator Klobuchar referred to that produced Teddy Roosevelt and some extraordinary progressive reforms, a healthcare system where people are dying of diabetes and the flu And curable cancers in the year 2019, in the wealthiest, the most powerful country.
1: Does Beto not realize that people die from the flu because they die from the flu? Because it's a virus that we have no cure for or vaccine uh, that is proven effective against? Does he, people still die from the flu? Yes. Yes, many tens of thousands of people do. Because it's the flu. That's not... Uh, Anyway, you know, who who needs facts? Beto has his blue shirt and he has a vision for America. Hour three coming up. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified and veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. Now, background checks are critical for your business. And you may already have some company, some vendor that does them for you. I want you to give my friends at Global Verification Network a call. They not only are veteran owned and operated so you can support veteran business by using them. They also don't outsource their data or any of the work. It's all done here in the States. So they are separating themselves from the competition and they are the people that you should be calling to do your background checks. They're headquartered in Chicago, but they have offices throughout the nation, and all employees are located here in the United States. So give them a call and tell them that you're part of Team Buck, all right? 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com, Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned.
0: And that's what I hear these things about let's make America great again. And I think to myself, well, exactly when did you think America um, was great? It certainly wasn't when um, people were enslaved. It certainly wasn't when um, uh, women didn't have the right to vote. It certainly wasn't when the LGBT community you know, was denied the rights to which it was entitled. Does that phrase echo as, as discrimination in your ears? Uh, it takes us back to, I, I think, um, an American past that never in fact really existed, this notion of greatness. Let's unpack Former Obama
1: administration, Attorney General Eric Holder there for a moment. Let, let's do this, shall we? Unpack what he says. He, he rejects this notion of an America that was ever great. How else can you explain? He says, well, we had slaves before we could vote. I mean, that, that takes you all the way up into the, into the 20th century. The LGBT community didn't have rights. That takes you up into the Obama administration. So if America wasn't great all the way up until the Obama administration, then America, according to Eric Holder, has never been great unless the only time it has been great is the Trump presidency, which you and I might think is kind of funny. I mean, I think it was great before then, too. Uh, but I'm sure Eric Holder does not take that position. But well, this for me is a reminder of a commonplace Uh, A commonplace way that Democrats uh, think of this country, you know, there are a lot of people who take pride in being American, but leftists generally take pride in thinking they're better than America. That's where that's where they get a sense of self-worth. You know, this is why, you know, Obama's message was very much a promise of a a fundamental transformation, that he was a near messianic figure who would wipe away the sins of the American past. And bring us into some new promised land, which, as we know, I mean, this is all just this was all just crap. It wasn't it wasn't true. It wasn't the case. But there there is a a blame America first and blame America as quickly as you can attitude that is prevalent on the left. And Eric Holder, whom I've heard people say, I, I don't know if this is to be taken seriously or not, um, but I've heard people say that Eric Holder is considering running for president, too. And the Democrats are soon going to get to the, the uh, you know, the, the, the dance hall doesn't have room for any more people part of this equation. I mean, you know, I really don't think you can have a, a primary with 30 candidates in it, but this seems to be where we're heading. Uh, Holder, though, understood his role in the Obama administration, which was very much to protect President Obama and to protect the Democratic Party. I mean, he was— a political infighter. You look at what Holder did and his approach to his job, and not just fast and furious and some of the other debacles that now are all swept under the rug and people pretend like they never happened. But you look at what someone like Jeff Sessions or even Attorney General Barr, how he is supposed to approach the role. He's he's expected to be not just neutral, but a a kind of paragon of. Nonpartisan perfection in the role. Meanwhile, when Holder was in the job, they all knew that he was, as Holder said, Obama's wingman. That was the claim that he was Obama's you know, right-hand guy, and he was. I mean, to to Holder's credit or infamy, depending on how you want to view it, he was in fact right-hand man to President Obama all along. But Holder also holds views that are very commonplace among Democrats and. He's somebody who has, has said, I, I believe it was it was Holder who said that America is a nation of cowards because we never talk about race. Reality is that we talk about race in this country all the time. The reality is that we talk about race and have to be very, very cautious because there are only certain ways you are allowed to talk about race. You know, it is it is now expected that at least among Democrats and the left and the media and the academy, that white privilege, which I think is one of the stupidest and most offensive phrases in common usage these days that white privilege is just taken as as a thing you know I'm still waiting for my white privilege check I'm waiting for someone to say oh I'm going to hire you because of your white privilege over the other 50 white guys who kind of look like you kind of sound like you and want the same job Uh, where's the white privilege I, I just I need someone to explain to me How there is how this is even worthy of being said out loud that people have something called white privilege. I deny that there is such a thing. And I would also deny that it is in any way a useful thing to talk about, not only because it does not exist. But even if you theoretically believe that there is such a thing as white white privilege, how do you quantify it? How do you offset it? What are you supposed to do about it as a white person? There are no answers here, but, you know, Holder knows that it's just it's among Democrats the cheapest and easiest applause line to speak of in these these sweeping terms about our our racist past and how how bad we have been as a country. That's why he says, you know, America was really never great, which uh, this is mainstream thinking among many Democrats that America has sinned around the world and at home and that Republicans are a bunch of jingoistic maniacs who just want to wave their american flags while they drink bud light and you know go race their four by fours out in the yard and you know all that you know some of you're like buck that sounds great i know but that's a caricature we all recognize that as a caricature um but holder thinks that we are not aware enough of the racism of our past i think many democrats agree with him play five
0: that um judges like everybody all other americans carry with them implicit biases um and especially in the criminal justice sphere how do you fix it well you certainly have to have training uh you have to make people aware of the fact that they do carry um the, these biases um and make them understand that you know if you see um an african-american defendant in front of you that's going to probably trigger things in your mind um unconsciously subconsciously and you're perhaps going to treat that person differently than somebody who mm-hmm. shows up in a tie and has you know Know, a great lawyer that they have paid for. You're going to maybe cut that person a break that you wouldn't otherwise give um, to a Hispanic or African-American defendant. People have to be just aware of that. And then that training has to um, has to continue. So here's a
1: fun fact. There is no evidence whatsoever that anyone can point to that implicit bias training has any impact on implicit bias. I mean, th- this is a kind of social science, Voodoo I mean that there is no that they people talk about this oh we need implicit bias training if somebody has an implicit or subconscious bias I assure you having a an hour of classroom time telling you not to be subconsciously biased will do nothing so you start with that I mean this is just this is meaningless this is meaningless pablum from holder on this issue and remember this guy was attorney general folks the senior most law enforcement official in the United States government for years And is still a Democrat in very high, very high standing. Um, But another question I have, if we're going to talk about implicit bias and racist baggage and racism in this country, I I just pose this as a question and, and won't follow up with an answer. But it would be it's interesting if you try to get the left to weigh in on, is it possible to have implicit bias against white people? Think about that one a little more. Let that one just bounce around for a moment. Is, is it possible for people to have an implicit? We're being told all the time that there's white privilege. So there are people who are white who are getting all kinds of benefits and advancing themselves because of their whiteness. Meanwhile, I don't think whiteness is in short supply. I, I don't know anybody who's, who's benefiting uh, professionally or otherwise merely from the fact of, of being white. Um, but is it possible for there to be implicit bias from people of any non-white uh, background against white people? You will hear most people on the left say the answer is no, which is a fascinating discussion in and of itself. That essentially anti-white racism is not possible because they view race entirely as a, a through the lens of it being a social construct. So in, in a society like ours, where the majority is white, although it's not going to be the case that much longer in this country based on the demographic trends, but in a society like uh, like ours, it's impossible for there to be anti white racism because racism requires power. That's what they say. They redefine what it is to be racist. They redefine the the very concept of racism such that it's not about treating people, thinking about people, acting toward people differently because of their skin color, making moral and character and uh, and other assumptions about someone because of their pigmentation and and some of their you know genetically dictated features that's what i think of as racism the left thinks of racism entirely through the lens of a power construct and so this is how you get all this talk about white privilege and even now white supremacy which you've noticed has been expanded well beyond what it had previously been thought of right white supremacy used to be people that would march around with swastikas tattooed on their foreheads and, you know, yelling about white power. And they've always been this noisy fringe of idiots and losers. But now white supremacy is things like, you know, the, the feeling that people have based upon someone's dress code or someone's choice of, of what they wear when they walk into a courtroom. You know, it, it's white supremacy to expect that somebody wear a jacket and tie, you know, what you heard Joe Biden recently talk about how, you know, that that this is a speaking about about the, the problem we have is white culture. I mean, first of all, for Joe Biden to say that, I mean, the, the guy is. Not not exactly uh, got a lot of street cred, I, I don't know what else to say, I mean, Joe, Joe Biden is, is not a particularly is not a guy that you would think of as understanding anybody, at least inherently understanding anybody outside of his own immediate circles but this is the way that you need this is the way that you're told to talk about these things from the left so i just think it's interesting because you know holder wants to lecture us about racist baggage but he doesn't have any solutions and he doesn't even have answers to straightforward questions and in fact the left doesn't have answers to these questions and when they do try to give answers they're entirely unsatisfying because they're inter- intellectually untenable i mean they're self-contradictory you, know, you you can't adjust your definition of what racism is based upon the race of an individual because then you're redefining what it is to be racist. Uh, but that is, in fact, what happens all the time among Democrats and the left. If we look for consistency, we're going to be looking for a, a very, very long time, my friends. But that is where we are. I've got uh, more coming up. Stay with me. Conservatives are under siege on campuses. You know this, my friends. And back in February, there was an incident that really showed us just how bad it's gotten. The Leadership Institute's field organizer, Hayden Williams, was peacefully helping conservative students recruit for their group when he was attacked by a vicious, radical leftist thug. Now, President Trump has taken action. He signed an executive order to protect conservative students' free speech. But more action is needed. You can help. Go to takebackthecampus.org to support the Leadership Institute and defend conservative students. The Leadership Institute is the premier organization for educating and training conservative college students. Now, the left's effort to silence conservative voices on campuses has gone on for far too long, my friends. Hayden Williams took a punch for all of us. Now it's time to fight back and protect conservative students on campus everywhere. Visit takebackthecampus.org to make your urgent gift to the Leadership Institute today. That's takebackthecampus.org
4: So I don't know if you saw my announcement speech, but I did it right out outside of Trump International. Did you see it? Well, the reason why I took the fight to him is because President Trump is creating so much division and hate in this country, but he is very small. He is weak. He is a coward. He is a leader who actually punches down. He demonizes those who need our help, those who need our support. Dobran just like wants to
1: yell and it's equal payday and like she wants equal pay for people because. Oh, my gosh, Democrats, can you do better than this, please? I mean, at least give at least give us some candidates to talk about that are, are interesting you know, and, and not just worthy of mockery. I mean, Gillibrand doesn't even, she doesn't know what her ideas are. People just tell her what the ideas should be, whatever she thinks will work at any given moment. But I thought that was a really, a really funny little little moment there where she comes out and she's saying, you know, Trump is creating division and hate. He's terrible and I hate his stupid face and he's so mean and awful. It's like, I'm pretty sure, Miss Gillibrand, that you are, in fact, creating division and hate. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, Kirsten Jill, is it Kirsten or Kirsten? I, 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 don't make, I don't mix them up on purpose. I swear, but it's just impossible to. Remember. I think it's Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, that she, she thinks that the Democrats are, are the are the great healers in this nation. I mean, the same Democrats who, for the last two years, have been pretending that President Trump is a traitor. Uh, that the president of the United States is a a sexual predator, um, a traitor, um, crazy, as in mentally unfit to hold any office, probably, uh, a racist, a, a xenophobe, uh, an anti-Muslim bigot. I mean, you go down the line, all these things that they've said about the president that are 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 deeply destructive and, and unfair and untrue. I do not believe any of those things are true about President Trump. Uh, They certainly the whole, you know, grab the woman by the area line that everyone's very familiar from the Billy Bush tape. I I don't know what it's going to take for the media to stop misconstruing what he said. I'm not saying it was okay. I mean, it was it was an ungentlemanly thing to say, but he wasn't bragging about assaulting women. He was bragging about. His access to attractive women who let him—that was what he said—let him do things because he's a famous, powerful, important guy. And, but they always make it sound like he was claiming that he you know, was drugging and then taking advantage of people or something. You know, that is almost a Cosby-esque situation. It's not that at all. It's not, and they're not so stupid. The media's not so stupid that they don't understand that. But a major, and you're going to see this now, gearing up for the 2020 election a major point of opposition against Trump that comes from the left has to do with making support of Trump socially unpalatable. You know, supporting Trump makes you somebody who's a bad person that people shouldn't be friends with. And, you know, nobody should like let their let their kids stay over at, you know, your house to hang out with your kids because you're a Trump supporter and you're a bad person. Right. That's that's. Part of of the effort here. And I, and it was just yesterday that I said to you, it's not just about. Trump, they really do feel this way about Trump supporters, too, you know, the, the things they're saying about Trump, they feel about the people who voted for him. And, and if that sounds at all like it's a it's a leap. Well, here's the chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, talking about people who support Trump, who support Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and all these different people, uh, or rather who who he named some of these people who have supported Trump. Here's what he thinks of those who support President Trump. Play three.
4: But the thing is, they, they are cowardly. I mean, history will not only judge Donald Trump harshly, it will judge
2: Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan
4: and all the other cowards who refuse to stand up to this president and allowed the party of Lincoln to die. They will be judged harshly
0: because whatever he says goes right now.
1: Cowards, he says, cowards about Republicans who won't stand up. And I can assure you. Cowards and and idiots and buffoons is how they would describe, at least privately, those who vote for Trump. It is not just about the president himself. It is about those who believe in what he is trying to accomplish. You know, see for me it's always been the it's always been the agenda. It has not been the case that, you know, President Trump's individual character or, you know, even individual accomplishments before becoming president were the motivating factor in in support. Although I do find most of his tweets and certainly his battles with the media to be very entertaining, amusing and and worthwhile too. Uh, the, the media has changed. They don't realize it quite yet, but they have changed and and it will never be the same because of this president. And I think that's all to the good. I think it's uh, something that we should all be very happy about. Um, but they're going to try this through the media, through uh, through not just and I don't just mean the news media. They're going to try it through TV shows and through Hollywood. And they want to make it socially unacceptable to support Trump. And And so even if you personally are going to vote for him. Uh, Gillibrand and Tom Perez and all these others out there are going to make people feel a little sheepish about speaking openly going into this election about their support for Trump. They're going to make people feel like, you know, I sit down in the boardroom at work or I sit down in you know, in the office environment, I, I better not be wearing my MAGA hat. I better keep this to myself. And that's an advantage for Democrats, and they know it, you know, a chilling effect on your support of MAGA is what they're trying to achieve, and they have a lot of ways of trying to do it.
4: Hi, I'm Hannah gabby and I'm here to tell you the binary is... Sex typically refers to your biological traits. There's your gonads, your genitalia, your internal sex characteristics, your hormone production, hormone response, and secondary sex characteristics. Gender is about your identity, your expression, and it's often based on ideas about sex. It's important that we really break down what are we talking about when we talk about sex and gender, and is there something called biological sex, and what does that mean? This idea that the body is either male or female is totally wrong, and I am living of that we know intersex people exist and break down this binary we all have characteristics that are typically male and typically female and it is really about political choices social factors ideological choices that we assign meaning to different parts of our body
1: all of that is wrong everything that you just heard there is factually scientifically rationally incorrect for those of you who are wondering, what the heck was that nonsense? It was a video ad that is running in Teen Vogue. Now, ho- hold on, before you say, "Come on, Teen Vogue, who cares?" I guess I better cancel my subscription. Before we look at that part of it, let's understand that you know Teen Vogue is owned by one of these big media conglomerates, just like all these other magazines, and they're propagandizing to young people who don't have the. Knowledge and philosophical background necessarily to understand that what they're being told is complete garbage There's no binary coherent thing called biological sex that is as as false as any statement can be There is absolutely a Coherent thing. It's it's one of the clearest and most well-understood things in existence is that there is a, a difference between XX chromosome and XY chromosome. Now, people who want to play the game, and sometimes I get emails from people that think they're very smart, and say, well, Buck, there can be chrono- uh, chromosomal abnormalities, and they're, you know, sometimes, okay, well, is that then the standard for being intersex? See, see they, they, want the, they want there to be a scientific explanation for what is a purely psychological phenomenon. And a phenomenon based entirely of of emotion and will and choice, not of a physical manifestation or a physical reality. And, uh, you know, this is a a kind of extension, this uh, desire to... First of all, there's a Marxist underpinning to all this, because destroying the family, destroying sex is necessary to destroy the family. Destroying family is a necessary component of replacing the family unit with the state. The state then becomes your family. The collectivist identity that we all are are handed by the state becomes the only identity that has meaning, because, of course, the state also wants to be uh, in place of God. So get rid of the family, get rid of God, replace it with the state. This is, some people will talk about cultural Marxism, but this is has long-standing roots in secularist Marxist philosophy. So it's not out of nowhere that all of a sudden we're being told there's no such thing as biological sex. This is a very fa- very fashionable, not just because it's in teen vogue, a very fashionable position on the left now. And people say this and think that they don't sound stupid when they sound very stupid saying it. Uh, they're is no scientific basis for the for these claims whatsoever and in fact every cell of your body is different male or or female and you know this goes to the the very earliest stages of of development inside the womb and and what occurs but you know it's also this desire to fight against nature and this presumption that leftist philosophy can somehow overcome Reality just by wishing it to be so. You know, it's it's almost like uh, you know, deconstructionism is a garbage philosophy of of uh, a Derrida from the nineteen sixties, and it's a theory about that that criticizes traditional assumptions about things like what is true and what is identity, right? So you just pull apart everything; nothing matters really anymore. Nothing is true or real anymore. That's deconstructionism, and this is how you get. You know, uh, high school sophomores, or particularly it happens in college, who are being told, well, let's, you know, what's wrong with Hamlet? You know, what, 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 is, what do you think Hamlet says? Forget what Shakespeare meant. What do you think Shakespeare was saying here? Not what do you think he meant to say, but what should he be saying here? I mean, this is what deconstructionism, it just turns into a form of, uh, you know, mental autoerotica. And that's a that's a fun word, by the way. That's what you see here, though. This is not rooted in truth. It's not rooted in science. Uh, but there is a very real movement to propagandize to your kids that there's no such thing as biological sex. Meanwhile, we're all supposed to sit around and be worried about the pay gap. The pay gap is, is a thing only if you don't understand how basic economics works, which the left also doesn't understand. I, I, I know that they have powerful emotions and that people who are leftists, they have these feelings that are very, very strong, but they really need to bend to the reality around them and at least make coherent arguments. And saying there's no coherent thing called biological sex is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. There absolutely is. We all know what it is. And just because they say so doesn't mean it it is. Um, Roll call's up next.
0: Ain't no party like a team buck party, because a team buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11.
1: It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. From Savannah, Georgia. I'm going to tell you guys something that's very exciting for me. And those of you who are from Georgia or Florida or some of the other states in the vicinity are going to think that I'm a big dork for saying this, but I was very excited today. I saw an alligator, which for somebody from D.C., perhaps because I am a swamp creature, for me to see a real swamp creature was very exciting, but it was basking in the sun, looked to be about a six-footer, I'd say, just hanging out, just hanging out. It's exciting for me. you know. It's uh, This is like when I've been in some parts of the world where, where there are, are monkeys just running around, like monkeys are kind of like squirrels, and you know, you know you're a tourist you're like look at the monkeys and all the people that are actually from the country are like yeah they're annoying and loud and steal my and steal food from like the windowsill uh, i'm sure people down here aren't as excited about gators as i am but i was like ooh, the gator very touristy moment for me but uh, unfortunately savannah i have to tell you i love your city and your food uh and georgia's a great state but i could have i could have used higher than like 45 degree weather while I was down here. I'm just saying, I came all the way from New York, I mean from not New York, from DC and it was a little bit on the chilly side. But no, Savannah's great. I mean the food here is amazing, which I will say is that pretty much sells me on a place. If I like the food, I can pr- I can handle everything else. Oh, and people down here actually have good politics unlike in DC, so that's nice. Johan said, "Heard you were in Atlanta for a conference and believe you said the name Stansbury." um so the recently i saw a tv ad for a book titled the american jubilee an online search took me to the website for the publisher is also stansbury scary stuff will you be sharing your views on it johan yeah they've published uh jubilee is essentially a book that dives into where the economy is going to crash out and how things are going to get really bad uh and yes that is stansbury research i work with stansbury research um i know the folks who run it very well and I'm down here for a Stansbury conference, but I am in uh, Savannah, Georgia. I am not in Atlanta. Jesse writes, if you're in Savannah, I hope you stop by Nine Line Apparel and Black Rifle Coffee Company. Jesse, I have had, it's a fair point. I have reached out to my friend at uh, Nine Line Apparel, the CEO of their Tyler Merritt. Unfortunately, he has been out of town over the weekend and, and into the week. So we've not been able to meet up yet, um, but otherwise I absolutely would have gone over there, and if I just had a little bit more time, but it's it's a bit, it's a bit on the uh, on the busy side. So I'm hoping that um, you know things will more or less come together on all that. Uh, what else do we have here? And I just started mumbling there at the end. They'll come together with the thing. Uh, Paul writes, hello, Buck. Any chance your truffled egg recipe is available online? Uh, Paul, I didn't know that I had a truffled egg recipe. Are you referring to scrambled egg with truffle flavoring? Because that would just be scrambled eggs. You add some either truffle shavings if you want to be very bougie. Well, hello. I like truffle shavings in my scrambled eggs. Yes, I do. And I wear a top hat and a monocle while I eat them. And nothing else. Um, that's one way to go. Uh, but the the secret for me for scrambled eggs is, and the the game changer things that I learned from doing it. An, and I'll just tell you, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I learned to cook by watching YouTube videos, but you have to watch multiple videos of making the same dish because everybody has different techniques, and certain ones you will pick up yourself and you'll and you'll like and others you'll be like I don't want to do it that way so if you watch multiple videos it's kind of like reading various news sources on the same topic it's important to do that in my business because there are nuances and and little details that are different from write-up to write-up so to go deep on a story you want to read more than one source on it in fact you want to read many sources on it most of the time I feel the same way about being a an autodidact chef I don't know if that's a thing, but let's say that's a thing. Somebody who's self-taught as a chef, which I am. And chef is way too grandiose a term for it. Somebody who can make some decent proteins and breakfast food and occasionally... No, that's really it, actually. That's where I go. That's that's the full the full length of my culinary skills. But my scrambled eggs are amazing. I mean, they're amazing. I, I cannot lie to you. It's a very good thing to be able to make carrot. Oh, wait, I was telling you... See... Karen, I'll get to you in one second. I skipped right over the secret. For those of you who want to know, you're learning one thing today you can really use. Make sure that you know that you can take the eggs. And this seems so simple, but I never thought of it before. I always tried to adjust the heat. Eggs are so uh, heat sensitive and cook so quickly that wh- as you're going, the moment you think that it's they're they're going too fast, because overcooking eggs is what everybody does. This is why when you go to a diner and they say, Hey, we're going to make you an omelet. And the omelet comes out and has those sort of brown scorched marks on the outside. I mean, eggs should never have brown scorch marks on it. That's not a good sign. That means they, they cook the, the, you know, what out of it. Um, be, be, uh, comfortable taking your eggs off the burner entirely. So just move it off the burner, move it somewhere else on your stove, move it somewhere where it's not over direct heat. Cause there's still going to be heat in that pan so it's gonna stay very warm. In fact, we'll continue to cook, But that's just a way more effective, I find than you know trying to get to like low, medium or simmer or you know whatever. It just, just take it off that heat and then know that in, in the process is is a necessary step. Uh, Karen Karen, Buck, great that you talked about the starvation in China under Mao. Helen Raleigh, who grew up in China, might be an interesting guest for your show. She is now a businesswoman who occasionally writes for The Federalist. I recently finished reading her book, Confucius Never Said, which is about the hardships her family endured under Mao and how difficult it was to get American citizenship. Look, China is is a fascinating, uh, fascinating everything. Country, economic competitor, national security challenge. And we are about to enter a new phase now. I mean, the last... Almost twenty years, you would say. At this point, we've we've had a twenty-year cycle now of interventions abroad, predominantly, but not entirely, but predominantly in the Muslim world, and they have been counterinsurgency operations for the most part, counterterrorism that turns into counterinsurgency, and that's just been our our focus. Radical Islam has been the primary enemy of america and the west for the last 20 years we are shifting out of that now not that radical islam isn't still a threat and is going to go away but they're not going to be a primary or the primary threat it's going to first it'll feel like china and china the u.s are butting heads more and more over economic matters and then the national security challenges will become more apparent so we are heading into that. I mean, I think we're going to be in a 20-year cycle, and it's really starting now, of U.S.-China struggle for dominance, and by the end of those 20 years, we're going to know who's the top dog, and you know, that's that's what I see happening now. So I'm really trying to r- r- gear myself toward understanding that as much as possible. I'm going to China in May, at least that's the plan as of now, uh, for all kinds of just basic ground truth tourism stuff and also some some high level meetings with some business folks there. So uh, I'm going to get some ground truth to be able to bring back to you here on the show. Uh, But China is going to be it, folks. I mean, all it's amazing too. notice how Russia, the Russia scaremongering since the Mueller report came out has dropped off already so much. And Russia is not a realistic challenger to us yes it has a very large nuclear arsenal it's a very big country with a lot of natural resources but it's it's little you know it's little weak sauce economy just it's not a serious national security and and economic competitor threat China is China's going to have a bigger economy than us and then a, a bigger military than well it already has more manpower but a more powerful military than ours under current with the current trajectory in a pretty short period of time. And we have no leadership, really, that thinks about this problem. I mean, the fact that matters that Trump is the first president in my lifetime who has at least been ringing the alarm bell about, you know, yeah, China, we want to work with them on some things, but and we want to try to be cooperative where we can. But China is a competitor. China is trying to become the global hegemon. It does not want to be in second place. Trump understands that, you know, his zero sum view, his hyper competitive view of all things, interpersonal, interbusiness relationships has meant that Trump understands the threat that China poses to not just the U.S., but the liberal Western world order over the long term. I mean, let let me put it to you in in these terms. The U.S.-China showdown that I think we're in the early stages of right now is going to be something akin to what you know ancient greece and persia were locked in i mean this is going to be the two great powers of the day or people would say a new cold war and that's you know sure that's that's another more recent uh version of it but i like to get to the ancient ancient greek and ancient roman stuff whenever i can so that's what i see uh, happening here and so you're going to hear more from me about china uh going forward Tim, that's going to be it for live from savannah Today here in the Freedom Hut, I'll be back in the swamp in D.C. tomorrow. I'm not going to bring any alligators with me, but I will talk to you then. As always, Shields High. We have a fantastic contingent of seniors who are patriots and love this country who listen to this show. And to all the seniors out there, I, you know, you may have heard of the AARP, but I want you to know AARP doesn't share your values. They're pretty left wing, fought for progressive causes, including Obamacare. That's why I want you to check out my friends at AMAC. AMAC was founded by an Air Force veteran, and they have been working for over a decade to support conservative views and policy here in America. So AMAC agrees with you on what the future of this country should look like, but also gets you great value. Discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, even cell service options. So check out AMAC. Stand with them as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us/buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America.